Welcome, fellow traveler. You are now listening to the Tent Theology Podcast. Each week, we have a tent talk where we pursue the renewing of the Christian social and political imagination. Richard Beck on the podcast today. Richard is one of the good ones. You know how they say you should never meet your heroes? Well, I would make an exception for Richard Beck. I first got to know Richard's work through his excellent book, The Slavery of Death, which was published in 2013. And it's all about the powers and principalities and how we live them out in the real world of institutions and organizations and how the fear of death is what pervades the politics that we build around ourselves. I found it such a fascinating book that I kept buying it and giving it away to everybody that I knew. And then one day I found myself as a co-panelist in a seminar with Richard Beck and I got to meet my hero. And I'm happy to report that the man I met is as kind and gentle and thoughtful as you would hope him to be. Richard has written a number of other books besides Slavery of Death, including Trains, Jesus and Murder, The Gospel According to Johnny Cash, Stranger God, Meeting Jesus in Disguise, Unclean, Meditations on Purity, Hospitality and Mortality, Reviving Old Scratch, Demons and the Devil for Doubters and the Disenchanted. Richard's most recent book follows on that theme in some ways, Hunting Magic Eels, Recovering an Enchanted Faith in a Skeptical Age, was published in March 2021. Richard joined me on Zoom from his office in Abilene, Texas, where he is the professor and chair of the Department of Psychology at Abilene Christian University. When he's not teaching Texan teenagers, he's teaching inmates in a local prison where he runs a regular Bible study. I talked about all this and more with Richard, and I hope you enjoy this conversation. Organically, I was uh, doing some some recorded conversation with a with a vicar in London, and I, I kind of I help I run his I run Bible studies or I, I'd lead the church through some Bible studies, and it just came up naturally talking about the slavery of death and the, the and I was using I was recommending this book to everybody, and I have to keep buying this book, Richard, because I keep buying it and giving it away. <laughs> it was fantastic. But, well, that's a compliment. Yeah. So. It's still, it's still the book. Like I still, it's still the book to me is still my touchstone. Like I've written other things since then, yeah. but I still think in my own personal opinion, it is the book that kind of articulates kind of like some of the deepest things I believe about the faith. So, um, so I love talking about that book. Yeah. And it's, it's something that really did. I don't know if it's just, um, if it is your best book, I don't want to say that. That's like saying what's your best child, but it certainly is the one that hit me at the right time. And it, it coincided with things that I needed to, to read and to think about. So for me, it's the most influential book anyway. I mean, I think you write really beautifully and, and, and you're really fun. Like you, you have a very good light touch for, for making complicated things sound interesting and, and good. But for me, this is the one that I, I do recommend to people all the time, The Slavery of Death. Can you tell us a bit about where 
it came from, the genesis of this book, before we start to talk about it? The, the genesis of the book came out of an encounter with kind of existential psychology uh, mm. when I was in graduate school. I read Ernest Becker's The Denial of Death. Right. And, it, and if your listeners don't know who that is, it's, it won the Pulitzer Prize. It's a significant work in existential psychology. And basically, the thesis of that book is that Becker puts this, this fear of death at the heart of human psychological functioning. Mm. Uh, uh, and he describes, we, we respond to the terror of death. And this is not foreign to Christians, right? This is Ecclesiastes, where death constantly yeah. threatens to render our projects meaningless. You know, yeah. what does it profit anybody to build these castles in the sand? And so Becker talks about how we engage in hero projects, um, which is the root of our identities and our self-esteem. So we, our cultures give us pathways to make a meaningful life, to create a significant life, to make a dent in the universe. But the, that, that suggests that anxiety is roiling underneath my identity. Um, yeah. And I found and I found that a really destabilizing insight that the all things the groups that, that you might look to for your identity or that you yeah. need to look to for your identity have at their base an anxiety about death. Yeah. And, and it's a, it's it, he comes from this kind of Freudian psychoanalytic analytic tradition that suggests, you know, that our our personalities are uh, ways of dealing with this kind of ne this neurosis that sits under us. And I think that's a really contemporary message too, because the one thing about our modern age is that we're kind of an anxious, fearful um, people. And we see the toxicity that that produces in the political realm, but also just in our personal lives as we strive ambitiously to make, you know, make a difference in our life or to be successful at our jobs. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's kind of where I connect it with kind of idolatry in the book. Anyway, that, that because we're that, trying to find meaning in something meaning that is and bigger purpose. than us that yeah. will outlive us. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, something durable, something outlive us. Uh, and how is that idolatry? Well, I mean, so so ultimately, you know, you're going to serve uh, institutions, organizations, or nation states that provide these pathways of meaning. Yeah. Um, that they, right. they, they become the arenas in which we perform and make a difference. So the, the way I kind of describe it when I talk about this with audiences is that, that, that some nation or institution, uh, organization, business, um, it provides you with the, the blue ribbons, uh, the, trophy, the trophies that are handed out in life, and that we use those to display to the world and to ourselves that, hey, here, here's why Richard Beck matters. And, and each of us have our unique local hero systems like so i'm an academic and so i i have things like my my student teacher ratings and if those are good then i feel like i'm you know doing well and if if i publish a book i can say here i've published a book and um and so i i have my academic blue ribbons but somebody who works in the corporate world or somebody who works in different you know in different places they're going to find their identity in other locations yeah. and so it becomes idolatry because we begin serving those we begin performing for those uh, those people handing out the awards and hanging our identity and our meaning on those things, and we yeah. stop. We lose sight of kind of where our ultimate value and worth comes from. So that so to me, self esteem, the neurotic anxiety that self esteem is trying to satisfy, becomes one of the interesting locations where we're pulled into idolatrous practices. But Becker's not using idolatrous language, is he? Is he using the no. language of worship here? 
No, he doesn't. Um, but it's close. I mean, it's quasi-religious language because um, these. I they, think they, Kierkegaard they, is underneath a lot of Becker's, isn't it? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so he's he's right close to kind of co commenting about it as religious. Yeah. Okay. Um, and and his point here is, is that you know some for some of us the, the hero systems are um, are religious, and so there are ways that religion and God. Uh, can become a principality in power. You see right. that in the fusions of God and nation and country. And so, so you can't easily extract an idolatrous vision of God from, you know, yeah. the God that appeared to Moses in the burning bush. I mean, so, so that, that's an interesting issue that I have to struggle with in my book is then you talk about these hero systems in a secular vein, mm. and then you know, people can raise their hands and go like, but isn't religion mm -hmm. um, uh, doing some pretty awful things in our world right now? Hasn't religion been behind violence? Um, so how do you extract? I'm just going to stop you there, Richard. I won't hear a single word said against <laughs> cultural Christianity not on this <laughs> podcast. <laughs> but but that's that's in that that's the hard dance, right? So yeah, how yeah. how do you how do you identify when God um, has become the idol and so right. i put god in scare quotes there that so that's the dialectic trick so, there um, how do we well i mean so in the book one of the moves i make and i'm borrowing this from a, a theologian david kelsey and another theologian arthur mcgill uh, i i use the idea of eccentricity the idea that that our meaning and our purpose um, has to come to us as a gift from outside the hero system that when we are caught in the hero system, we are performing for the blue ribbons and, and trying to fill the trophy case, however that is conceived. Uh, in America, that would be the pathway of the American dream. So I'm, I'm handed that from birth. It's the air I breathe, the water I drink. I imbibe that and go like, okay, that's what I got to do. I got to walk that, that American dream pathway. And that, that, that gives me my a heroic identity. Um, and but that becomes toxic in a variety of ways. So, so to what I argue in the book is that our our identity have to, has to come to us from outside of the hero system, received as a gift. So this is the language yeah. of grace here. Yeah. So when so then I take that idea, the eccentric identity, and kind of connect it to the eccentric God. And this is Walter Brueggemann's uh, description of what he calls the prophetic imagination. Mm -hmm. where the prophetic imagination is that capacity where one could can imagine God is eccentric to your current tribe. Yeah. That, that, that toxic idolatrous practices occur when God is captured and enslaved by the tribe. So God is for my nation. God is for my, my, my church, right? I draw a boundary around God and God is on the inside. Yeah. And therefore what happens is God sacralizes and legitimizes the hero project of the culture. Yeah. God just becomes the sacred baptism of this nationalistic or corporate or even just individual hero yeah. project of mine. Yeah. Yeah. And Brueggemann argues that in, in, in Exodus, the first slave that has to be freed is God. The enslavement of God by the status quo 
by the institution or by the nation. That's the first slave that has to be emancipated. Right. And so when God is emancipated, God is then is allowed to become eccentric to the community and then speak a word over against that community. Yeah, that sure. capacity for God to come at you from the outside or even to stand with one's enemy. Um, so you see that in the book of Jonah, yeah. where, where that is a prophetic book where that book imagines God caring for Israel's enemies, the Assyrians, like the book ends, shall I not have compassion yeah. on this great city? And that great city was Israel's enemies. And so that capacity that God is standing over against me or over um, or even with my enemy is, is to me, the, is the safety valve of faith to where when we have that capacity, cultivate that capacity, entertain that, that, that self-criticism yeah. which I think is one of the great moral demonstrations in the Old Testament, the way Israel enshrines self-criticism in her sacred texts. <laughs> she, yes. I mean, right. I mean, Israel enshrines the prophets, these voices yeah. that are yeah. just critical of herself and her own yeah. idolatry. And Israel, yeah. Israel says self-criticism is holy writ. Yeah, I hate your sacrifices is that's canon baby <laughs> yeah and i don't know i don't think people appreciate the 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 audacity yeah of enshrining self-criticism as sacred writ yeah, instead right, right. instead we want god to legitimize ourselves we want god to be our big kind of rubber stamp or our big cosmic yes man in the sky yeah. and yeah. israel is just this document of god you know being over against so in the many, nationalistic elements, the rubber stamping elements are there in the scriptures as well, <laughs> but it's always, a, it's always accompanied by a another voice or a different voice, which is also yeah. enshrined. So it's, it's a conversation or an argument, not just mm -hmm. a conversation, it's, an, it's a real knock yeah. down, drag out fight sometimes between those two voices, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I, to, to me, I think that's the healthy, like when you see that, when, when you see that happening in a community that that is to me just a sign and a symptom that this community is at least is at least trying to do the, do the work and the labor right. of extracting god from idolatrous practices yeah. but when you see the that capacity uh silenced right when, when self-criticism of the nation self-criticism of the church community is silenced and it's all just one big baptism of what we think and what we believe or whatever, then, then that's a dangerous community at that point, that, that, right. at that point, God has been enslaved. Yes. Right. And, and, uh, and that, that, that community often goes dark morally. So what did you bring to the, I mean, what, what made you decide you wanted to take Becker's work and fuse it with the, I don't know, Hebrews. You, you really, I mean, the quote is the slavery of death is from, Mm -hmm. of hebrews so where, where did you find in in the new testament something that was fitting with what becker was writing about in the 70s well so so i again i'm kind of an existential guy so the existential arguments that becker raised are, are the ones that kind of haunted me and ha mm -hmm. have been a kind of a, a preoccupation of my research but also just my own spiritual journey and so i i had always thought that that the predicament of death um especially not just that we die but the way it kind of again ecclesiastes suggests that everything is meaningless or vain that that has always kind of just haunted me 
And, and so I kind of has all, have always been on a journey to look for theological and biblical voices that can kind of maybe, that, that would identify with that predicament. Yeah. In, in, in evangelical communities, the predicament is guilt, you know, that we are sinners in the hands of an angry God. Right. And, and, and there's an answer for that. And the answer for that is the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. You know, that solves the guilt problem. But guilt was just never my problem. Right, <laughs> death, right. death was always my problem. Yeah, right. And uh, Paul, Paul Jones, I don't know if you know Paul Jones's work on theological worlds, but I, I found it a really interesting book where he argues that we all have a defining uh, predicament. Okay. And uh, like we all have a central conundrum or problem or question that haunts us. And that, that conundrum, that question creates uh, a theological world because salvation is then what, what resolves or, or comes to make that conundrum uh, restless again. And, and, and so to me, the theological world of evangelical Christianity is the conundrum is guilt Okay. The problem is sin, you know, and judgment. And therefore, if that's the conundrum, then there's a solution. And that's yeah. a theological world. But my theological world was different. Um, it was meaninglessness in the face of death. Well, well, then that at that point, then I need a different savior, right. to put it that way. I, I need a different vision of atonement for this conundrum. And so that drew me into what is called Christus Victor um, mm -hmm. theologies. Because in the Orthodox tradition, uh, death is the conundrum. Um, the, the, the victory over death is the conundrum. I'm like, oh, okay, well, here is a different theological world that, that, is, that it has a different kind of answer. It's Christ's defeat of death. Mm -hmm. that, that is what saves me. Less about forgiveness on the, on the cross, you know, atonement, but more about the defeat of death. And so that drew me into that, that theological world, into texts like Hebrews 2, 14 and, and 15, where it describes how the Son of Man came in the flesh to free those who are under the power of the devil, okay? Yeah. And, and the power of the devil is described in that text as uh, those who are enslaved to the fear of death all their lives. Yeah. And suddenly here in this New Testament text, right, that the power of the devil in our lives is a slavery to the fear of death all our lives. I'm like, yeah. well, that sounds a whole lot like what I heard about yeah. Ernest Becker. Yeah. And, and that just drew me into a different way of thinking about sin and salvation and, and what's going on with us. It changes the way you think about our, our inheritance from Adam and Eve and so on and so forth. So that's how, that's how it happened. I, I've been always kind of on the lookout for other theologies that could help with those questions, which yeah. led me ultimately to Orthodox theology in Christus Victor Atonement. And how does this work in terms of I mean, we're using power. When did you start to discover the usefulness of power and principality? Like, well, so so the connection here is um, at the same time when you're reading about the power of the devil, that takes you kind of down that road of the yeah. principalities and power. So Ephesians yeah. comes to mind. Our battle is against not flesh and blood, but against these principalities and powers. And as as you know, and I'm sure your listeners know if they follow you, is that that those principalities and powers are not like spooky woo-woo forces, no, you know, right. in the air. But these are institutional structures yeah. that are often um, enshrining political and institutional powers that have divine legitimacy, yeah. Yeah. and that between heaven and earth and the ancient world, from from God all the way down to local 
local powers, political whatnot, that these were all a part of a kind of a great hierarchical chain of rule, okay? Yeah. And, and so there's this kind of interesting mixture of the political and the institutional and the spiritual, that those weren't separate things, but blended. And to so see our, at, our institutions, our politics as base being, being uh, born out of slavery to the fear of death all our lives. Mm -hmm. And that's, well, that gives new meaning to the idea when you say that the, the, the devil has rule of, of, this, of this land, like, Right, mm -hmm. the, the devil rules the world, or the devil has the command of the nations, or he's the prince of the of this age. Yeah, because this age it, has can, slavery to the fear of death. Mm -hmm. Well, so the so the argument I make is is that what happens is um, is that the the powers that be, the institutional structures, um, are in a fallen state. They're in, they're in a state of rebellion. They they have in the biblical imagination and locations of Paul, they, they have purposes in, in, not, in, in preventing a right. kind of complete descent into chaos. And yeah. so we are recording this a few weeks after the assault on the U.S. Capitol. Yeah. And, and, and so in one sense, you can kind of see there the, the, the goodness of the powers, that this kind of anarchic uprising um, crashed against some sort of democratic structures, and those structures held Okay. And, and we look with, we look at relief and kind of go like, okay, yeah. um, we're going to be able, we, we put that down and there's going to, so you can kind of see a relief that some structure is there, democratic norms, the peaceful transition of power. Um, those, those are good things, right? Those, those help with human flourishing rather than just having mob rule. Malignant uh, anarchy. Yeah. We like to talk yeah. about benign anarchy sometimes here. Yeah. But I think mal malign anarchy would be what we saw. Yeah. But at the end of the day, so, so, so there is a kind of primordial goodness there, but that, but that, but that power, you know, is also now in rebellion too. Exactly. Is that it's, it is in um, a fallen state, not wicked, not corrupt. We're not burning it all down. Right. But we, we are definitely realizing that it is now asking for itself the, the worship and the allegiance that is ultimately due to God. Yeah. And, and the powers, and to connect this with the fear of death, the powers have two, two carrots that we greatly need that I think facilitates um, the idolatry. One, well, in the book, I talk about when we talk about death anxiety, right, this fear of death all our lives. I talk about it in two different registers. So psychologists talk about basic anxiety and neurotic anxiety. Basic anxiety is basic survival anxiety, um, uh, resource anxiety. Um, if you are in an unsafe situation, if you don't have enough money to pay the bills or food mm -hmm. to eat, right? So you can think of maybe Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? The basic physiological anxieties of life. That's basic. There's nothing neurotic about that. That's just, right. you're trying to survive. Neurotic anxiety is the anxiety we were talking about earlier, this, this neurotic thirst for heroism. This yeah. Henry Nouwen talks about the great temptations of the modern world or the temptation to be spectacular, relevant, and powerful. Right. So these are the neurotic self-esteem projects, the blue ribbons, the, 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 the vanity of thinking I'm better than others, right. or the shame of failing in the hero project. So we're experiencing the hero project neurotically is either pride, vanity, okay. competitiveness, rivalry, or we're experiencing as a failure in the system. So we, we haven't measured up to those metrics. So this is shame, guilt, low self-esteem and security. Either way, you're neurotic. 
you're either a narcissist or you're insecure, but that yeah. whole bandwidth is neurotic anxiety. Yeah. And the powers, these institutions, my nation state, my employer, they have their hooks in me on both sides. So for example, it's hard for me embedded in my employment structure to be a completely prophetic voice because the power controls my paycheck. Yeah. And I think a lot of us struggle with that tension between how do I act redemptively in these powers without being completely ejected by the powers and standing on the outside and I can't pay my bills now. And I think a lot of us feel that the, the complicitness of needing, needing a paycheck, needing police, <laughs> somebody's breaking into my house, but also being complicit with yeah. police violence and the, the unethical actions of my employer or my nation state. And so we, we feel that kind of weird tension just on the basic anxiety. But then there's the neurotic anxiety that typically my employer or my guild mm -hmm. also controls the neurotic anxiety of my life. They are the ones saying, you're a good uh, scholar. Yeah. You're a good, you know, you're a good employee. Like you're getting promoted up through the ranks. And that's not just getting me a bit bigger paycheck. That's also giving yeah. me this self-esteem buzz. It's an existential. Right. But, but what happens is, and so here to kind of finish this point, what happens is, as I argue in the book, is that what, what we do is that our death anxiety individually is satisfied by the power. Uh, the power, my institution gives me paychecks and also blue ribbons. But what then happens is that my death anxiety is just handed off for the death anxiety of the institution. Yeah. Because institutions being fallen structures are motivated by their own death anxiety. Um, and so you can see this in nations, you can see this in institutions and even churches where their survival, the survival of the nation state, the survival of our little church, their survival of our business becomes this scarcity mindset mm -hmm. and it begins acting violently to, to protect itself. And so what I'm doing is I'm just trading my death anxiety for institutional death anxiety. Um, and, and to come back to Hebrews, we are all being puppets of the devil here because the devil's using those survival anxieties um, to manipulate us into unhealthy or unethical practices. So what's the, the scarcity? What, what were you saying? It's a, a, a universe of, of scarcity. What was this phrase that you used? Well, so so one way to describing so so it's hard to talk about death anxiety when you go to churches, you know, right. you start talking about existentialism or yeah. death anxiety, people like I don't know what you're talking about. You know, that's just yeah. now some people get that existentially minded people. So I think a better way to describe what I mean by death anxiety is scarcity. Okay. Um so scare because and Brene Brown's work, I think, is really helpful here. Brene Brown talks about scarcity as being the never enough problem. Right. And, and the never enough can be basic or neurotic. So never enough money to pay the bills, never enough security to defend our borders, not enough jobs to go around to have a hospitable immigration policy. Right. Mm -hmm. So a scarcity mindset here that there's just not enough here. 
there's not enough to do. And, yeah. and, and therefore we have to be protective and defensive, you know, because of immigrants or because of the loss of my position as a white person in, a, in an increasingly uh, diverse world, right? So there's yeah. not enough power, there's not enough money or resources. So we have to hoard and protect those. So we become like smog the dragon. We hoard yeah. Yeah. Um, because there's not enough. And so we got to hold on to this. So postures of generosity get eclipsed. Neurotically, there's the shame of not being enough. So not having enough or not being enough. So not smart enough, not successful enough. So this is, this is the, the register of shame, hmm. drivenness, competitive drivenness. And so, so I think talking about not, not having enough, not being enough is a way of describing this fear of death and our slavery to it. So it's just a it's just yeah. a different way of just describing that. And and, and 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 basically what I'm suggesting is that you'll see some of the worst behaviors in humans and nation states emerge when they are construing the world through yes. an economy of scarcity. Yeah, right. That there's never there's not enough. So the op the opposite side or the other side would be there's always enough or there's yeah. always more. And that and that's what that's that's where people talk about uh, uh, an, an economy of an abundance, okay. um, that there is always enough. And so God, so we talk about how God's economy is an economy of, of abundance uh, or um, an economy of gifts that are given and received. Yeah. And so instead of hoarding, there is a, and see, that's the interesting thing about smog the dragon. There's hoarding, but there's also stasis. Just, just gather it all and just sit on it. Yeah. Um, wait for a rainy day. But an economy of abundance has a sense of movement and exchange. Things um, are in circulation. I, I can give. I can give because I'm receiving. Yeah. Um, and I think that's what you see in the first century community, yeah. is that over against kind of an economy of empire and economy of scarcity in the early church in like Acts two and four, you see the economy of gifts and sharing and abundance. They yeah. they sell it. So so what I talk about in the slavery of debt is how how. Um, it says there was no needy person among them. Well, that's because the gifts were flowing. Yes. Um, and, and, and because the gifts were flowing, there was no needy person among them. Yeah. The, tr the trouble with, I think, the smog version is smog is not needy because he's hoarding. And I think that's the, that's the difference between our churches and the churches of Acts, where we go to church and everybody is okay yeah, because they have accumulated enough of a material buffer that they don't need anybody else. Like that's in America, at least, that's the, the, the great ethic of American society is to not be needy, to be right. self-sufficient, to be kind of godlike. Yeah. And that way, when I go to church, um, I, I, I don't need anything from anybody. And, and so to me, there's also that kind of, again, so what you see, there's a fear of scarcity. I, I yeah. can't be put in a position of scarcity because that would make me needy and that's shameful. Yeah. It's, so there's a whole lot going on there. Right. Because your identity, you're, 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 you're showing yourself to have your identity fully in that neurotic zone <laughs> of my self-worth and identity is fully wrapped up in my uh, ability to show a certain set of numbers in my bank balance. Mm -hmm. Where does the cross come in? So you, you, you began by saying you didn't find evangelical visions of atonement theory that focused on the cross as a forgiveness of sins to be very existentially compelling. Where is the cross then in 
the powers and principalities and abundance yeah. and scarcity. So, so one of the way I use the cross in the book um, is that there is prior to resurrection in the receiving of the gift, um, a prior renunciation. Okay. And so this is where Paul looks at the hero system of his world. Yeah. And he kind of trots through his hero system. He's like, hey, if you want to get into a bragging game, I can brag more than you. Here are my trophies, right? Here are the things that make Paul matter. And then after he gets through that long list of kind of yeah. Yeah. He yeah. then says, but, but I've crucified all those things. I have died to all those things yeah. um, so that I might have this greater surpassing knowledge of Jesus Christ. And, and so that's also baptismal mm -hmm. theology where I am renouncing or dying to the ways of configuring my identity. Uh, if we want to speak about allegiances, when I go into the waters of baptism, all those prior allegiances... Um, to the principalities and powers are dissolved. So baptism is like this acid bath where prior entanglements, prior allegiances, I died to those. Um, and I'm raised to a different, as a new creation. And I'm reconfiguring how I make meaning in the world now in a very different, in a different kind of way. So, so that I, to me, that, that's what it means to kind of take up the cross and follow Jesus. So take up the cross. What does that mean? That means dying to the ways that culture defined heroism but also enduring the neurotic shaming yeah that is is results from that because to carry a cross is also to carry a shame yes because you are playing by a different set of rules and to me that's one of the biggest tools we typically talk about the powers politically you know it's all about politics i'm a psychologist I think the powers get you in shame. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That, that, that's the tool. Because if you start stepping out of the meaning-making structure that the powers give you, then you're going to be weird, okay? Or yeah. in Paul's language, you're going to be a fool. Yeah. And, and to carry that shame and to have the kind of shame resiliency to kind of say, me and my family and our little Christian community, we're just oddballs. Um, we just do life differently and, and we don't chase that particular blue ribbon that everybody's chasing. That is hard to sustain by yourself because you're going to feel like a weirdo. And so that's why Christian community is important to help build some shame resiliency, some companions on the journey to go like, that's not weird. Yeah. You know, that's, that's a resurrected life that you're living. Um, even though you seem kind of odd to your neighbors. So, so to me, yeah. The idea that the powers come at you through shame and self-esteem helps us kind of say, this isn't just about politics. This isn't just about what's going on, right. you know, uh, in the political thing. This isn't just about social justice. This is about your deep meaning-making structures, about what you think a good life and a godly life and a flourishing life is all about. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit about Johnny Cash? <laughs> <laughs> Let's do it. Do you find in him, so you wrote a book about Johnny Cash. Mm -hmm. Did you find in him that sort of oddball eccentric? What, what was it that drew you to, to those kind of yeah. outsider? He's deeply American and yet he's also deeply subversive. 
of the American dream, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting aspect. You know, there's nothing more American than Johnny Cash, right? Johnny Cash and apple pie is about as American as you can get. And yet he's a very restless patriot in that sense. It's kind of this prophetic imagination that we were talking about earlier, because the reason why I got into Johnny Cash is because I have uh, I teach a Bible study at a, at a maximum, maximum security prison, okay. about 50 inmates there and didn't know a whole lot about Johnny Cash, uh, but started just listening because I thought it'd be fun to his album live at Folsom prison yeah. back and forth as I drove out to the study. It's like a, it's like a 30 minute drive out there. So I just started listening to this prison album. It's in a live, it's a live prison album. So you're hearing the, the prisoners shout and stomp. You're hearing the guards break in, call people's, you know, inmates numbers out for their visitation. The warden comes out at the end and everybody boos them. And it's just, it's just an amazing, the sounds of it. Just, I'm like, I know those sounds. Like that's the sound that I, that I experienced on the inside. Okay. And the gratitude and the enthusiasm of the inmates for cash uh, being there with them and kind of an act of solidarity. And so to me, that's what drew me to Johnny Cash is his willingness in his music and, and in his concert, right, to go to the margins of the society, to stand on the people that have been kind of excluded by the principalities and the powers as uh, the, and they are now unseen. Yeah. To stand in that location and to say, we see you. But not just to see them as an act of benevolence, but also to be saved by them. I talk about that a lot in the in the book. How that concert came at a very precarious time in Cash's career. He was he was on the downswing of his career, its popularity, um, um, but he was also just newly sober. And so his spiritual life and his sobriety was fragile, and his musical career was really fragile. And you can make a really good argument that the inmates that day saved him. In their reception, what made that album so electric, they saved his psychological health and his career musically. And so he finds salvation on the margins of his own society. And that's what I've experienced in my own life. I, I get more than I give when I'm out there at the prison. And so to be, that's that restless prophetic critique that grace is going to come to us, not in the halls of power, but yeah. maybe inside of maximum security prison, or maybe on the other side of the railroad tracks, to use an American phrase. I don't know if you guys, do you guys use that, the other side of the railroad tracks? Well, I know it because I'm, I'm Canadian, so I don't know if the Brits use that, actually, <laughs> but I use it. That, yeah, that would be the rundown part of town, you know. That would be kind of where the down and out live on the other side of the railroad tracks. So that's what I like about Cash's music is he always was a voice for the downtrodden and the marginalized economically or, or uh, you know, from a criminal justice perspective. So again, it's a renunciation of the hero system to kind of look for grace and God in these forsaken places. It's also, I mean, we like to think of him as the lonesome man in black idea. And we, we also are very addicted to thinking of the prophetic person as the, the the lonesome voice crying out in the wilderness but actually you describe somebody who found his salvation amongst fellows he he, uh -huh. he needs actually the, the neurotic world you described one of the neuroses is the single hero myth that that you need to go it alone or that you are an, you are an individual all by yourself you don't need anyone 
and that if you if you have people in your life that you need then that's a form of weakness mm-hmm. and yet sometimes you actually do need to find your people to mm-hmm. you have to leave one group to find another group but you're always having to find some people around you right oh yeah i think most definitely i think i think uh, cash is on life bears it out so the you know like the embrace of the incarcerated saving his career his wife june carter a lot of people think he would have killed himself in the deepest parts of his addiction she was right. integral in keeping him yeah. alive but also was a big part in him coming back to god um in the 60s and 70s so yeah we need yeah we need others and again that illustrates what i was saying before about that eccentric posture there, there, one way to think about it is uh, a metaphor I played with is is that idea that the early Christians would 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 baptize the people in living water, water that was moving. It couldn't be stagnant. Yeah. So something about like you were talking about that lone individual, the smog, the dragging is yeah. a stagnant water. It's closed off, but it pollutes. So we have to we have to be receiving and we have to be giving. And 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 life is at its best with that economy of gifts flowing through us. Yeah. And we just passing on it's the way paul says it right death is at work in me but life in you so i'm just passing it on right i'm and and and, and so that's what we do right right we give um but god is filling us and others are- more what i i mentioned that i was talking about you in a bible study that i was doing earlier today and the bible study was on mark 9 the transfiguration mm-hmm. and there's the famous thing where jesus shows up and he's glowing with white robes and peter says Holy crap, this is Brit. This is great. Let's build three booths or three tabernacles, three religious buildings, and let's keep Jesus and Elijah and Moses here on this. Let's just stay here on this mountain. Uh, and that's been, we're told he didn't know what he was, he was speaking foolishness. He didn't know what he was saying. And this is where we started to talk about principalities as creating structures to try and contain and house a revelation from outside. <laughs> And it's like Peter was trying to keep lightning in a bottle and yeah. keep it so that it wouldn't get away again and to maybe try and repeat it again or to live in that moment. And actually, the revelation happened, but the, his job was not to just create a religious structure to, to, mm-hmm. to trap it and to hold it. It was to come back down off the mountain, right? Mm-hmm. And again, it was that idea of like, yeah, constantly moving constantly keeping things in circulation keep giving away because there's always more that seems to be the posture yeah i think i think that's the birth of jesus's itinerant ministry like mark so mark one you know he 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 has that night of all he has that kind of all night healing session you know i think he's in capernaum and the sun sets and all okay human possessed and the lepers and everything he heals all night long yeah, and it goes off in the morning after he's, he'd been up all night, and he goes off and he prays by himself, and you can just see him thinking through what happened okay. in that first night of restoration, and then disciples come looking for him, and he says, "We need to go to the other towns." Yes, we, this show what just happened. Yeah, this needs to go on the road you know and, and then he goes and then he and then he starts i mean it, it, it you can kind of see it there it's like here's this thing that happened in this place and rather than keeping in this town and like like you can see him just pray all night and go this is what i'm supposed to do i'm supposed to I'm surprised do. he didn't start a multi-campus church with 
with a university uh, and an uh, elementary school and a high school mm -hmm. attached and uh, yeah. conference center. He starts, yeah. he starts walking, you know, that's the beauty. And, and, and then he, he starts walking and taking around like 10 theology, it seems like almost. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Well, he's the, No, that mean, but he is right. He's the tabernacle. He, yeah. he, he becomes then the tabernacle that, that travels around Israel, uh, restoring it. Well, that is that is actually one of the uh, the ideas behind tent theology is that you set down, easy to take up, easy to take anywhere. It should be not something you build that has to require lots of resources to to keep it lurching forward, right? You should be able to yeah. move quick, quickly across the ground. Where does the uh, enchantment come in? I want I want to end the way that we we started this conversation talking about your recent, most recent project about re-enchantment. Is it that? Are you noticing something like the people, the, the wheels have come off the wagon of modern Christianity or the gas has come out of the tank in lots of ways? And are people, mm. is, when you talk about re-enchantment, are you talking about followers of Jesus finding new ways to travel together? Are, they, are you talking about finding new life in old, in old things? Are you finding about, what are you talking about when you talk about re-enchantment? Yeah. Yeah. My writings tend to be, I think all books are kind of situational, you know, they have a certain audience in mind. Um, and, and so I don't know how much this fits your audience. And so, but, but the audiences that I am interested in with that particular book is just the, 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 the rise of unbelief. So the increasing rates of agnosticism, atheism, okay. the, the rise of the nuns, and so the book about reenchantment is um, kind of about the decline um, of Christianity, post-Christian people. And so obviously there's large parts of Christianity that are very much enchanted. So charismatic traditions are very enchanted. And, and so they might not need to hear a book about enchantment because they're very enchanted. They might have a, need a different book about how to discern their enchantment. And I do right. spend time in the book Right. deal with that so basically the book is is about the uh, secularism and the ri the rise of science and so I, i'm a college professor and so i'm dealing with a lot of young people who are not staying in the faith they're walking away um and and they're finding frankly their hero systems in political engagement so right. so i don't need god i don't need church i don't need enchantment because there's social justice there are there are, there are political fights to be won or lost and so they're going into the hero project of like social justice. Okay. And so that's kind of my context for the book is kind of an apology for God uh, and the need for God. I do, but but when I do talk about that, then yeah, there is the specter of misenchantment. Yeah. And and that's where we need to have a conversation about discerning the spirits. And so I do conclude the book with like, okay, again, how do we know to come back to our conversation? How do we know that I'm not just using God or some woo-woo spirituality to just baptize my own self-indulgence or just baptize my political party or baptize my state. So how do I discern this enchantment that, that, I'm, that I'm calling for? Uh, so I, I deal with that in the book. I've noticed, I've talked about this before. I know I'm repeating myself for listeners of the podcast, but I have to say like the, the amount of people I meet who, who, who say they've lost their faith because of, a scientist, materialist, cultural Marxism, quote unquote, mm -hmm. 
it pales in comparison to the amount of people I meet who say they've lost their faith because of Christianity's connection to nationalist conservative politics. So the disenchantment I'm meeting is not from people who are who've become hyper rational. It's because it's for a moral they're they're morally offended or they're they're existentially uh, challenged by the Christianity they see. It's not an intellectual, scientific kind of. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. Um, I, I would argue, though, um, or I would question, okay, that might, like the precipitating event of loss of faith might maybe, maybe a little bit different. But the question I would then ask is, is the person then who sees it like a really toxic Christianity on display mm-hmm. looking for more authentic visions of Christianity, or are they leaving faith? Yeah, right. So, so to me, yeah. So to me, they're still moving into disenchantment. Yeah, and I agree. St- and and still have to deal with the reenchantment of faith. Yeah. But but uh, that seems weird to me, right? That you would be a Christian, and then see bad Christians, and then not believe in God. Like that that doesn't square with me. So to me, it seems like there is some sort of it's faith, even for that person. Is standing on these like a really fragile foundation, mm. which kind of like if faith if faith kind of works for me in the public sphere, you know, or kind of supports my political, you know, then then yeah. that's okay. But the minute I kind of see the brand name get damaged, I'm kind of like, yeah, I don't believe in God anymore. Like, and but I think like, we're just seeing more proof to what we were talking about earlier, which is the cultural imagination of Christianity that a lot of Christians are born into. All they mm-hmm. know is that cultural imagination itself is one of these principalities which is addicted to the slavery of the fear of death yeah so so when and and addicted to amassing power and preserving its own name and reputation and all that stuff so when you come to the end of that when you realize that the project that you were a part of was a bad project and everyone around you associates christianity with that project then to abandon the project is to abandon christianity for a lot of people i meet right yeah i think that's well diagnosed yeah i would agree with that yeah i I think the politics and the spiritual are very connected here and and it it is a disenchantment but it's not because they're reading sam harris or richard dawkins right it's because they're looking at franklin graham Mm -hmm. like that's who's disenchanting people yeah and if god was just that right if god was yeah so god was idolatrous from the very get-go then to kind of see the idolatry is to walk away from god um yeah they're that, I told think, by a lot you know they're told by their people like if you don't support all these things and these policies and these if you don't mm-hmm. check all these boxes then you're you're not a christian anymore and so i meet these people who go well i yeah i guess i'm not a christian because they haven't been in, introduced with any kind of re-enchanted vision of the, of the world yeah and so by enchantment i would then yeah that 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 the mystical contemplative side of Christianity where we are kind of encountering that ground of being. Yeah. Um, and one of the things I talk about there is the, the way that ground of being and God kind of, kind of we hold before that God kind of a non, a non-performative posture. I was talking about with my, my mm. small group about how prayer it's hard in prayer to just hold the self in a non-performative way before God, because we're always trying to win some game. Yeah, right. Uh, and, and so to me, one of the great enchantments of the mystical tradition is that sense where 
where I don't do anything before this God and, and, and receive myself as a, you know, as a gift. And I also think that ground of being is so large that it dissolves those boundaries between those nation states. Like, why would your God, why would the ground of all things be tribal like that? I know something uh, so flimsy. Yeah. Like, 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 yeah. And, and not, and not just tribal, but like historically contextualized, like, like I know out of all the great empires that have risen and fall, this particular one yeah. in 2020 yeah. is, is the, is the crux it's of the one. Yeah. Yeah. And so in many ways, yeah, our imaginations about God is so small. So paltry. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and so that's, that's one of the things I like though, about that, that, you know the the vision in scripture uh, especially in revelation where it's, it's all nations all tongues are, are coming into this universal kingdom right the, the, yeah. those 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 divisions that separated us on this planet are, are so uh yeah flimsy is the word well, they serve a purpose but it's it's hardly as big a purpose as they themselves claim for themselves right mm-hmm. the principal the principalities are have a place and a purpose but it's it's a lot less important than they think. Yeah, which I think you, you said something to me a couple of years ago that I've thought a lot about is kind of this benign indifference that we hold, right? Like, yeah. like there is a sense where I, I don't, I'm not overly invested in the status of the, again, right. my nation, my nation, America, has a lot of its own survival anxiety right now, right? You see, is it any wonder that America is so anxious when we kind of see the rise of China, you know? Yeah. Now we're suddenly worried about like, are we really number one? Um, do we need to make America great again? Notice the neurotic anxiety there. Yeah, America has to be the greatest nation. Like, why? Like, what? Yeah. What's, what's the purpose? Yeah. Like, why can't we just have like a, a normal country? That's one of the things I like about Britain. Is like, you guys were an empire once, and you're over it now, and you're like, yeah. You know, the we name were, great. We're great Britain, but you know, <laughs> we, we used to be the greatest nation, but we're not anymore. So you're all, you know, you're all more relaxed. You know, you're not thirsting to, to be the greatest, but America is still like caught up in this status anxiety. Yeah. Right. Uh, like, you know, heaven forbid, we're just a good nation, a functional nation. You know, we got to right. be like the best nation, but, but then that trickles down to its citizens, right? I get this self-esteem buzz from being an American, right? So, so again, my neurotic anxiety is fueling my idolatry. The status of my nation is reflecting upon the status of myself. Mm-hmm. And I fear the decline of my nation because that would diminish me. Right. And so you're seeing all of anxiety. But, but to me, if you just, but if you look at the first Christians, like Hebrews, like, hey, we're just wandering through. Again, 10th theology, right? We are just here. Yeah. We're, we are traveling through the nations. The nations come and the nations go. But the kingdom of God is eternal, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so, so, and and you can just, you know, you like listen. I need to be involved. To be clear, I'm not about indifference in the sense like you shouldn't do what you need to make your political order right. The the, the powers are not wicked; they are fallen. So do your best to repair the walls, um, to make your neighbor have a better shot at happiness. You know, um, I think that's good work. But I'm also not overly invested in the ultimate success of the American project. You know, you're, 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 it's that benign indifference. You know, I have positive feelings about the structures when they're working, but at one sense, I'm not hooking any of my self-esteem to, to whether or not America is great again or not, or ever again. I don't, in one sense, I don't care. Yeah. I, I don't have any, I don't have a dog in that fight. 
I want my country to be more just and more fair. But as far as its greatness, I just don't have any, I'm, I'm kind of indifferent to that. Well, Richard Beck, thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love talking with you. And uh, I feel like I just, I just got to have a conversation with my friend. If anybody else wants to listen, they're very welcome to, but I for one got everything I needed out of this and more. So thank you, Richard. Uh, I'm going to send people to your website, experimentaltheology.blogs. Is it a, what, what's the website? Yeah, it's an old blog spot. Yeah, I've never changed it. So yeah, but if you Google experimental theology, I'll be up, I'll be like the top hit or something like that. And, and we, we, we'll find your books in all the places that people find books. Or just listen to this podcast. You don't need to spend a dime. <laughs> Thank you, Richard, for joining us. Go well. I appreciate it. Thank you, Steve. To further support the show, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media and learn more about Tenth Theology at www.tenththeology.com. Thank you for joining us and God bless everyone.